Welcome to Timothy Eden Memorial Church, a place for life. Connect, participate, celebrate. Last Monday night, we were honored to host three other congregations in our neighborhood, Grace Church on the Hill, Congregation Bethsedic, and Holy Blossom Temple for an evening of prayer. This sanctuary was full, and of the 800 or so people, about 600 were our Jewish neighbors and friends. It seemed like every single one of them wanted to stop and say thanks. This was such a gift. Often they did so with tears. They would say, it's been a really lonely time for us. Thank you for this kindness. What we did was not hard. My sermon was really short, as short as some of you say they should be all the time. Elaine's leading the choir was simpler than a normal Sunday. Stephen's playing was the same. It's just what we do. We gather in this space and we pray and sing. But it meant so much to a people feeling without neighbors or friends. We heard stories from Rabbis Yael and Steve that when other people are in trouble, Jewish people go to bat for them. So, for example, after the mosque shooting in 2017 in Quebec City, Rabbi Yael called up a nearby mosque and said, hey, we at Holy Blossom want to come hold hands in a circle around your mosque so you feel safe, praying, a circle of peace. The imam called back and said, um, my brother imams also want circles of peace around their mosques. Six more synagogues signed up. That's seven circles of peace of the children of Isaac surrounding seven people praying, children of Ishmael. Some wise heads say there can't be peace in our world until there's peace between religions. And sometimes you realize, look, it's already here in these circles. But after the horror of October the 7th, rabbis didn't get calls of support. Circles of peace weren't offered. So our Jewish friends are hungry for the slightest kindness, and we could offer that. One of the Christian clergy asked me, why does tonight feel so much weightier than normal church? They weren't clergy from our church. They were from one of the other congregations. Here's what I think made that night so special. It wasn't just the tears and the thanks. For us Christians, Jesus Christ is our reconciliation. He has broken down the dividing wall between Jews and everybody else. And Monday night, there was no dividing wall. It was just children of Abraham and Sarah worshiping the God of Israel together. It was a taste of the world to come. We have another passage from Paul today. One of you brave souls last week came up to me and said, I'm getting a little tired of Paul. So am I. Don't tell my church. Paul is someone not often preached in liberal mainline churches like ours, but he's good fiber in the diet. He's a difficult friend, the kind that makes you better after you wrestle with him. Our system will adjust, and today is one of Paul's best. He says, if anyone is in Christ, there is a new creation. Now, you might have heard this verse translated this way, if anyone is in Christ, there is a new creature. Lots of more evangelical translations say this. It is not what Paul says here. 
This would suggest that Christ came to save individuals, to make new creatures. Now, that's true, but it's not nearly big enough, and it's not what he says. God came in Christ to make a whole new creation, to do Genesis all over again, to heal every molecule that God bothered to create in the first place. So what you heard earlier is better. There is a new creation, but this would be better still. If anyone is in Christ, new creation, the old has passed away and the new has come. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is like God saying in Genesis, let there be light. The world is new made and all there is is possibility. We've had a number of new babies born in our congregation lately. When they're strolled in here, they bring their radiance with them. You can find the babies by finding the little huddles of people clumped around them, like they're warming themselves in an open fire. When a baby is new, you can stare at them, you can kiss them, you can sniff them, you can tell their parents how good they did. When they're a little older, this is no longer recommended. You can't go up to a perfect stranger and say, oh, you're so beautiful, can I kiss the top of your head? No, you may not. Even a toddler, this is getting a bit creepy. I wish we were crazy enough about Jesus that we could say this to total strangers, but they would lock us up. With babies, you can do that. Every other person is beautiful too, of course. Paul says Christ makes the world an infant again. Nothing but newness nothing but possibility, radiance, and glory. Paul is saying our salvation is too small. Churches like ours once thought of Christian faith as a way to make sure you go to heaven when you die. More recently, we tend to think of it as some psychological pick-me-up for when you're facing hard times. Some others use faith as a way to cudgel people into their political or social views, all too small. Paul says Christ brings a new cosmos, a new universe. His resurrection is not just for our healing or others' healing. It's for the healing of the nations. This is too big for us to get our head around. All we have are metaphors. We're toward the end of fall now. Think back to September when you saw the first red leaf of the year and you thought, that's just the first. Millions more are coming. All the leaves will be set aflame. The entire world will be lit on fire. That's the resurrection, the first leaf. The whole cosmos will be made new as well. Christ the King Sunday. It's a day when we evaluate all political orders and see how far they fall short. Lots of king speech in our hymns and our liturgy. They all do fall short. There's a joke in France that Napoleon II was the best ruler France ever had. He collected no taxes. He started no wars. He committed no crimes. That's because Napoleon II never reigned a single day in France. Every actual human ruler is terrible, more or less. Christ alone is king. All others are pretenders and false, however good or bad they may seem momentarily. When folks tell me they're worried Trump will get elected again in my home country, I worry with them, but I should say not to worry. Christ is king. Every petty tyrant 
will be thrown down. When I first moved to Canada, Barack Obama was president, and Canadian friends would tell me what kind of hero he was, and I should have said, don't get too excited. Christ alone is king. He is the only one who rules. When folks used to tell me about Trump, I would say, I'll take a bad president in exchange for a good pope any day. And in Francis, we have one of the best. Popes are more important. They last longer. They have more people under them. They have a lasting effect in a way that presidents who come and go don't. But then I should calm down. No, no. Christ is king. Even good rulers will disappoint you. So lots of my conservative Catholic friends are saying that's what's happening now, that Francis is some kind of not pope. I should say, welcome to Protestant land. You don't need a pope to be Christian. Here's a pledge card. See you Sunday at 11. What I should say instead is that Christ is king. Everyone else will disappoint you. It's just the way of things. When we stand in line or wait on hold at the bank or with the phone company or at Service Ontario or at any border, we should stop and think, Christ is king, take heart, his government is not a soul-crushing bureaucracy. His reign is easy. Christ's reign begins soon. In fact, it's already started. I want to tell you how I've misinterpreted his kingship before. I became a Christian at a Baptist camp. The basic view of faith there was that you get saved, you get everyone around you saved, and then you make sure you don't drink or smoke or fool around with girls, and you vote Republican. I jest, but only a little. In college, I went to work at a Presbyterian camp, but no one read me the rules. Different crew. So one night, a kid in my cabin asked to pray with me. I introduce him to Jesus. He accepts him into his heart. And I come into staff meeting the next day waiting for high fives. A kid accepted Christ in my cabin last night. And they looked at me, embarrassed, like I'd broken wind. And one of them said, hey, that's great, man. <laughs> and I knew I had erred in some way. In Presbyterian land, people accepting Christ is not the goal. The goal is a whole new social order. Every element under Christ's sovereign reign. Plus, Presbyterians are kind of cool about everything. My Methodist forebears would have said, that's great, he accepted Christ. What about today? He's a man in his 40s somewhere. Is he still walking with him? What about when he comes to die, hopefully as an old man? Will he be full of nothing but love of God and neighbor? That's just one step. There are many more steps to go. Our United Church forebears would say, yeah, but is he agitating for justice, speaking up on behalf of the oppressed? You see what all those critiques have in common? They would say, my notion of salvation was too small, hearts alone, when Christ's actual salvation is a whole new world, social order and universe. Plus, lots of people who call themselves Christian or have prayed a prayer or been baptized are mean as snakes the rest of their lives. It takes more and more of Jesus in our hearts and in our world. He took one step, lots more to go. Sometimes in Christian land, we have this debate. Do you work to convert people who are then more like Jesus, who then change the social order? Or do you forget the converting part and put all your energy into bringing justice? Evangelicals do the first, liberals do the second. Here's what Paul says here. They're both too small. 
Christ has already brought the world he wants, a world of changed hearts and of full justice. His resurrection has begun that. All you have to do is announce it. You don't have to enact it. Every old way has passed, Paul promises. The new has come. An example. In World War II, Coventry Cathedral was bombed, one of the great ancient houses of worship on the planet destroyed. Some wise soul decided to let the shell stand, and there it is. They rebuilt a new cathedral right beside the old. And here's the thing. You have to pass through the destruction of the old to get to the new. From destruction to new life. The old is passed away, but it's not erased. It leads to the new, the world of Christ's resurrection. And just for fun, here are some images inside that new cathedral, that one of Christ reigning. He reigns everywhere, y'all. Sometimes you can even see it clearly. Those world wars were mostly Christian countries bashing one another to death. In response, Mennonite churches, peace churches, which every other church had persecuted, had a modest proposal. Let the Christians of the world agree not to kill one another. Some react with outrage. How come only Christians? The Mennonites reply, you got to start somewhere. If Christ's peace can't change us Christians, how do we expect it to change the whole world? On Christ the King Sunday, I find myself reaching for martial metaphors because we often reduce Christianity to individual hearts or preferences. God expands it to the nations, to the cosmos. One of my teachers says this, the church is God's beachhead, a place where the power of God has invaded the world. It's clearly a D-Day image. After June 6, 1944, when the Allies invaded Europe, the war was over. Both sides knew that. The question was just how long it would take and how much blood and treasure would be spilt in the meantime. The church is after D-Day. The war is over. But before VE Day, there's a lot more angst to come. Things are still treacherous. But the end is not in doubt. The other night, I asked Rabbi Yael about her kids' faith. We Christian ministers will ask one another about this sometimes. So do your kids believe? Do they have to be coerced to come to church? Now, she looked at me with kindness, but a little patience. And she said, you know, we Jews don't talk like that. You Christians do. I'm not sure what my kids believe in their heads but they get the peoplehood bit. That's what I'm trying to help us get. The church is a people. Judaism is about God repairing the mess we've made of the world. Paul is Jewish too. He gets the peoplehood bit. He says Christ's resurrection is the repair of the cosmos already begun. And that's true whether we or our kids or anybody else believe it or not. More geopolitical images. In 1988, no one knew the Berlin Wall would fall and European communism would come to an end a year later. But that's exactly what happened. And the world was new, just for a moment. In 1993, no one knew apartheid 
would vanish, Nelson Mandela would take power and forgive his enemies. But that's exactly what happened. Now, there are complicated histories behind both of those events, and no one can explain them fully, but they both show Christ is king. And his peace breaks out from time to time. No one thought either of those things would happen without massive bloodshed, nuclear war, or blood in the streets. And they did. Christ's reign is present even in the ceasefire in Gaza, however fragile that is, with some prisoners returned home. Praise God. That's Christ's reign in real time. More of this Jesus. We are desperate for it. This cosmic view of salvation is why the United Church in Canada came together to try to dissolve denominations. Instead, we created another one. You're welcome, world. We wanted to just have one united church. Everybody join in. If Christ has dissolved differences between people, we can't be competing with one another for resources. Now, we tried to invite the Anglicans. They said, nah, we like our bishops. Many of you seen those hats? They're cool. We did not invite the Catholics. They were our competition. It was partly to compete with the Catholics. At that time, we were worried about immigrants coming into Canada and all of Canada becoming Catholic. History is stranger than you think. Our peace in this world is so fragile, even when it seems to succeed. And I think that's why Monday night was so sweet. Jews and Christians together in the same space, worshiping without trying to change one another, honoring our differences. The dividing wall was gone. Christ's peace is the answer even when the church is barely present. So in, in, in India, Hindus, Muslims, and Sikhs are often at each other's throats. Christ's nonviolent kingdom is the answer even there. And there's a rugged minority church demonstrating that with its life together. Anywhere you see reconciliation, however big or small, that's Christ's lordship. One more glimpse. In conversations about truth and reconciliation, a group of indigenous Christian leaders met with a Christian prime minister. They were talking in the hallway before an event, and he turned and asked them, it's my only chance to ask, how can you guys still be Christian after all the church has done to you? Cheryl Bear responded, um... Because Jesus is God, and nothing you or anyone in your office can do can change that. Sir, you're on. The microphone is lit. The truth of the gospel is not reducible to the failures of colonialism. Christ is still king. And Paul calls us, us of all people, to be ambassadors of this reign. There's a church I admire in Paris on Embassy Row. It's right next to the South African Embassy. The Senegalese is around the corner. And this church has a plate on its door that says, Embassy of the Kingdom of God. <laughs> An ambassador to a country is to be treated as if she were the sovereign in that country. You and I, friends, are representing Christ everywhere we go. An embassy is a little patch of soil in another place's country. We show the world his peace here and now. There's a South, Africa, South African, South Korean consulate, five minutes walk that way on Avenue Road. And when I see its proud flag, I think of my Korean friends and students, their amazing barbecue, their tech sector, 
They're strong families. They're a booming church. The four presidents in a row who left office and went right to jail. I don't usually mention that part. And I think, what an amazing place. When folks see our church, would that they would say the same about us. Wow, God's peace is here. And it's spreading. Look, their life together is evidence. Now, there was a time in the church when we thought we could just grow and grow until the whole world would be ours. We didn't realize that homogenizing the world doesn't make you a church. It just makes you an empire, a dealer in violence. But that's why we fought Muslims in the Crusades. It's why we persecuted Jews in our midst. This is our world. Everyone can form a violent distortion of Christ's reign. In the last 150 years or so, there's been a new form of this, especially among fundamentalist Christians in the U.S., but influencing us here in Canada. It says the opposite. Okay, it's not that the world keeps getting better and better until Christ crowns it. It keeps getting worse and worse. And only when it's as bad as possible, then Christ comes. So don't try and make anything better. The worse things get, the sooner Christ is coming. Uh, no, that's wrong too. Christ's peace is already here and is loose in the church and in the world. That second fundamentalist misuse of faith usually considers the church a mistake, plan B, an error. Nope. This is Christ's embassy of peace. So his peace, his kingdom, it doesn't do like this, and it doesn't do like this. It's more complex. It's not linear at all. And it certainly doesn't just grow and swallow the world. That would be Rome or Babylon. And Christ certainly doesn't come after things are their worst. That would be nihilism, bloodlust. Christ's kingdom is more like this. In 1994, there was a horrible outbreak of violence in Rwanda as Hutu-majority people rose up and killed their minority Tutsi leaders. 800,000 dead in a few short months. Canada's role as UN peacekeepers was heroic, but not enough. This was not an ancient conflict, contrary to news reports at the time. Hutus and Tutsis had long intermarried, made their lives together. It was European colonists, backed by junk science, that said, no, no, you're racist. One of you has to be better than another. Many died in churches. Surely we'll be safe in there, they thought. And no, they weren't. What peace could reign in such hell? Well, I'll tell you. Muslim families. Some 1% of Rwandese people practice Islam. They said, we know what it's like to be persecuted, and we recognize people in trouble. Come inside. We'll give you shelter. And vastly out of proportion to their numbers, they did just that. As Christians, we say, that's Christ's peace demonstrated through the children of Ishmael. Bless them. Now, they wouldn't call it that themselves, of course. But when the church is unfaithful, God will raise up a witness from some other people. In Rwanda today, Tutsis are back in charge, and it's illegal to say the words Hutu or Tutsi. Freedom of speech sacrificed for understandable reasons. It's a fragile peace. But Christ's peace is one where differences are acknowledged and celebrated, and then we make our lives across their lines with friendships, 
with marriage, with citizenship and neighborliness. And if the Christians of the world agreed not to kill each other, that genocide couldn't have happened. Here's the point. Christ is king. His reign is one of peace. And here's what I want you to do. Point it out where you see it. Work for it where you don't. Hail king. Long may you reign. Make this world the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, where he will reign forever and ever. Amen.